This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by The Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. You want to see the side art, you want to feel the controls, and you want to hear Devo on the stereo. So, when you're in the Chicago area, and you're looking for that classic arcade experience, well, just whip it over to the Underground Retrocade, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. I'm Carrington Vanston. And I'm a douche with a crown. <laughs> this is no quarter. You got me laughing already, Mike. Uh, the classic arcade podcast. How are you? It's going to be a good night, Carrington. <laughs> Mike may be intoxicated. <laughs> I, actually, I'm not. No. All the rage and frustration from this past week has been building up, and I'm going to spill it on you and our listeners. You were supposed to be at a convention right uh, now. Yeah. Denver Comic Con is happening right now, actually. Right and now. Right at this, this is, moment. Well, actually, no. It, it closed about an hour Not ago. Not at this moment. Not at this moment. No. The previous because moments. Because it's held at a convention center, and the convention center closes at 7, they kick everybody out. So I wasn't going to go down there at... Six o'clock and, and watch people leave for 20 minutes. So I'm going to go down there tomorrow, though. They'd be leaving in costume, though. It would still be entertaining. It could be. It could do you be. do you go in costume when you go to cons? I have a Star Trek uniform <sighs> that I wear. Yes. What is your rank? I am a second lieutenant. Actually, no, I've been promoted. I'm a, a lieutenant now. <laughs> Who promoted you? Uh, the captain of the starship, the, the, the Star Trek fan club, of which I am a part. Are you actually Thank a you member much. of the Star Trek fan club? I am. You're yes, my new Starfleet. hero. That is awesome. Starfleet International. Yes. I'm not the commander. I don't wear my uniform everywhere, but I do wear it to cons. That's awesome. So it's like a it's like a regimented thing? Like there's an official, real Star Trek fan club that you can be ranked in? Uh, yeah, it's uh, Starfleet. That's what it's called. See, other people wouldn't think that's cool, but yeah. I think that's really <laughs> cool. It's the Starfleet, uh, Starfleet International Fan Club or something is the official name, but... You're a nerd, <laughs> he said, looking into the mirror. <laughs> I was going to say, it's taking you this long to figure that out. <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of all things sci-fi and convention. Like, I go to Toronto's Fan Expo every year, which is our Ooh, big local yeah. one, and it's awesome. It's four days of just joy. I hear good things about that every time I listen to a podcast where people talk about those sorts of things. Those um, sorts of things. There, this is the third year that Denver Comic Con is happening. The first year they had 27,000 people. The oh. Last year they had 40-something thousand, and this year they're expecting close to 80,000. That's a lot um, of people. And it's growing like crazy, and I don't know that they have the infrastructure to, to support it, but I'm going to go down there and try not to panic with the claustrophobia and, and, ner and uh, uh, crowds of stinky nerds. Um, I love Fan Expo, and I have – travel to other cons and similar things as well love them love them love them just i'm really into that sort of thing it's so much fun but i agree that sometimes these things are getting sort of outrageous in their in the number of people attending fan expo for like the saturday and sunday it's a four-day thing but on the saturday and sunday you it's you can't even move there's so mm -hmm. many people and you know yeah. the bigger your costume gets the harder it is to move around <laughs> uh it's just you know it's you know you don't want to exclude people but holy cow we either got to start like having each day is played twice or something and you go to one it's it's getting to be too many 
yeah, it's uh, the, the I guess sci-fi pop culture, whatever you want to call it, has really kind of exploded and caught on and become uh, a big money maker for a lot of people, and that means a lot more people are going to show up. You know? Yes, it's, including every me. summer. Every summer we have more and more superhero and, and comic book movies, and and not that I mind that that at all, but the success of those things is kind of what feeds the success of this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh. I think it's a, we're in a golden age to be a, to be a sci-fi nerd right now. I, I love it. I agree. It's, it's pretty darned awesome. And in fact, last year, for those of you who have stuck around listening for this long, God help you. <laughs> um, Four minutes we, in, we have yet to mention a game. <laughs> that's right. We've, we well, last year we talked a lot about um, Richie Knuckles and the one I still say that's not a real name. (laughs) Pretty sure it's not. It's too good. Um, It's too good. And it is, it's perfect. Uh, they, they had purchased the twin galaxies properties and they had just rolled out that new website. That's right. And Walter day and, 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 uh, Steve Wiebe actually got a kill screen there. And, um, so we talked a lot about that. Uh, given the meltdown of twin galaxies this past fall, I don't know if, I don't know who or, or what is going to show up there. If anything, if anything at all, I, I imagine I imagine one up Jordan will be there with uh, the one up and maybe a few machines, but I don't expect it to be what it was last year, especially since they don't own Twin Galaxies anymore. So I wouldn't expect you know Walter and, and Steve and Billy or anybody else. So. And then there's not necessarily that coherent organization looking to promote something, so you just end up, end up with nobody at the con. So right, that is a shame. It is, but we have another thing that I talked about last year when it was announced uh, that's going to be happening. I think it actually may have started already. Denver has the uh, this street arcade thing, and I remember you talking about that. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, in fact, the the street arcade began this week, June seventh. It's uh, oh heck yeah! Looks like it was put together by a guy named Brian Corgan, and I I know again the the at one point the one up guys and Richie and and Twin Galaxies were involved. I don't know if they are to an extent anymore, but it's still happening. Uh, you can go to ohheckyeah.com and read That's about it. That's a great I, domain name. <laughs> I haven't been yet, but uh, in fact, my wife has been bugging me to to take her. So we will be going and I will be talking about it at some point. That's fantastic. And looking at the website, it runs from June 7th all the way to July 26th on every Thursday and Saturday. So that's great. Yep. Now, I don't know if this is going to be, you know, arcades in the traditional sense of arcades where it's mechanical penny arcade machines or if we're talking you know house of the dead shooters or something in between i don't know i just think it sounds awesome and i like oh heck yeah.com <laughs> so i vote thumbs up do i get a vote i'm gonna say yeah i get a vote of course you do i vote that i get a vote <laughs> well that gives you a vote so there's other news as well we've got so many episodes so many episodes sure we could call these episodes we've got so many episodes without news and suddenly we've got a bunch um super smash brothers is just on the cusp of coming out for the Wii U, etc., and I've been quite excited about it because I've I've really enjoyed that um, the lineage of those. I, I, I'm a fan of Super Smash Brothers back to the GameCube days, and they've recently added Pac-Man. So that's the newest character to be released. So you can play as Pac-Man and beat up on people like Mario. So when you when when you've got Donkey Kong, when you've got Mario, and now you've got Pac-Man, there's quite a few classic arcade characters now mixed in among the fighting foes of Super Smash Brothers. So that's pretty cool, I think. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and Big Blue, uh, not the computer thing, not the uh, uh, like the big computer brain, but that's Big Blue, blue from oh Deep Blue, Deep Big Big Deep Big, big Blue is IBM, I think. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Big Blue made Deep Blue. They called me Big Deep in the 80s. 
Because <laughs> I was like I a soulful rap guy. Don't want to know. Big Blue is a main front end are the words that I have been groping toward. <laughs> and so have you heard of the main front end Big Blue Mike McGinnis? Answer yourself. <laughs> well, I know Carrington. I have not. <laughs> I guess answer me, not yourself. <laughs> I just want answers in general. So <laughs> no was the answer you gave. And that was the correct answer. But I'm going to tell you why you're disappointed that you don't know it. And we will have links in the show notes for all our disappointed <laughs> listeners. It's a new front end for the main command line program, like old school people like me use. In fact, it can really act as a front end for any command line program, but it but it's kind of geared towards main. And what's unique about it is it's a front end that which essentially, you know, is a menu system and lets you choose games. But that's very unique. If you have two players playing, they get to fight to determine who gets to select the game. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a front end that is itself a game and you do battle and the winner of the battle gets to pick the game you'll both be playing. And I think that is a wonderful twist. So I'll have a link to a video walkthrough that shows you how to set it up and how it works. And we'll have a link to the actual big blue front end site, um, which is just a, a, a google.com site. So super, super fun. And uh, I've been leaning towards something like hyper, what hyperspin. I think this might be the front end that I finally put on my own main system because I like this idea. And I'm sure it's something we'll be implementing in our, our uh, in the way that we choose games. <laughs> that's a great idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so that's fair. I agree. That is almost certainly what we're going to do now. So um, I just think it sounds awesome. I'm really, I'm really, really excited about it. And I think it looks cool. And so it's, uh, it's neat. So we'll have links to the show notes if people want to change their main thing. So you fight on your way to the the game itself so i think that's cool um and feedback we got a bunch of feedback this week we got a lot of feedback based on like we opened the show with the whole douche royale <laughs> my stance against what i consider the royal douchebags um that's me <laughs> including mike mckinnis for the most part we got some mail sent into the general mailbox i got a lot sent to me directly most of which was saying go carry it down with mike <laughs> So, but I suspect you got the go mic down with Carrie. I got a bunch of I got a bunch of F you mic. Oh, did quit you? the show mic. Oh yeah. yeah oh, I got, I got I got at least ten of those. People, the thing is, I do think that the negative feedback we got was misattributing to you things that you did not say. A lot of people were writing into me saying, you know, go Carrington because he was calling out those big meanies who are who are being big meanies to people, and Mike shouldn't. Tell the tell those people they're awful. You repeatedly, I, I remember to see you in that show. You repeatedly said that you did not think it was right that people were picking on the, the club was being mean to people. You in no way were standing up for the douchebags, but I think it's because you weren't, you know, as gung ho maybe as I am on the idea of just purchasing machines. You just got scapegoated. I think. I think you were picked right. on. I'm used to that. I I tend to say things without really thinking about them. Just whatever comes out of my mouth is what comes out. I tend to think things without saying them. I uh, thinking I, about I, you I now. One, <laughs> well, hey, I was the one that edited the show. I could have cut that whole conversation out. Uh, I cut it back in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I I did. There were a couple. There were only two. I think things that I cut out, and it was just because you and I were talking over each other, and and, and you cut out your part. Oh, of course I did. <laughs> but so I. In addition to not really thinking about what I say, I, I when I'm get heated, I tend not to get my ideas out very well. What I was trying to say, and, and I'm sure I'll get vilified for this as well, screw you all, <laughs> is that um, if you ask my opinion, I think that for me, 
collecting, a big part of collecting is being social and, and maybe taking these other avenues. Whereas if I could buy something on MAME or I could meet the collector that's selling it to me down the street, I'll probably choose the second option rather than hitting the buy it now. But would you say that people who just buy things are in some way bad or less than you? I don't think they're bad or less than me. I think for me that, that that would be that that's missing a part of the experience for me where, where the, where the problem comes in and, and where, where I have a real problem is with the way Kalov treated that guy for coming in and, and trying to, and, and doing things differently than the way that they did and them immediately vilifying him instead of being helpful. You know, I, there are plenty of different thoughts of uh, schools of thought about how you collect and what you want to collect because Look, I look around this room and I've got dozens and dozens and dozens of Apple III items. I'm probably the biggest Apple III advocate out there. I bought, I think, 90% of that has come from places like eBay. So You're a terrible person. I am an awful, I'm writing a scathing review of you <laughs> online right now. All caps. That's how angry I am. All caps. One was posted not so long ago doing almost that very thing. So, Oh, muffin. We'll have a, sh- a link to that in the show notes. I'm quite certain. I I failed to get across that what they did at, at Kalov, the way they treated that guy was wrong, and there's there's no excuse for that. I, I've been around Kalov long enough to, I guess, when they did that, it didn't surprise me that that happened. It shouldn't have happened. It was wrong, but this is Kalov, and, and when they treat people like that, I kind of shake my head and go, well, you know, that's, there they go again. I, I always crazy. still get surprised when people are crappy like that. I don't know. It's just, I don't know. And maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe I need to be, you know, less jaded and, and, and more kind of surprised and angry than I am about it. I get both surprised and angry about that. I find that that kind of thing just, I don't know. I guess I want to be a champion for the people or something, but I just think it's just wrong and it gets my dander up. Yeah. You know, you know, if you want to buy your collection on eBay, great. I think, see, and I think that's the point. I don't, I don't know. We got, we got some great people wrote in with some great links about, I guess the phrase is geek gatekeeping. And so this idea that people like within a, within a geek community of some sort, a bunch, a group of nerds into some nerdy type thing will take it upon themselves to be the bouncer to the club. Mm, like they are the, and they will tell you, like, if you don't essentially start where they ended, then they're going to look down on you and you can't do it that way. And I guess it's whenever I encounter something like that, whether it's like what happened to this Chris fellow or the whole nerd girl thing, like, you know, you're a fake fake geek girl. It's to me, it's all the same thing. So it just, I I get, I get upset about it. I'm a champion of the people, Mike fighting for the people. (laughs) Now, if, if a guy like that who bought his collection that way told me about it, I'd be happy for him. He and I may not have as much in common to talk about initially, but I bet we could find some common ground. And, I and bet talk you'd have about tons of great common. machines. And, and, exactly. You're and I would, I would go, stuff. oh, God, I'm so jealous that you could spend so much money on a machine like that because I want it myself. But maybe he even didn't. Like, we're jumping to a lot of conclusions. Maybe he did. And, I don't, and, and the thing is, people will say, oh, I got, I got this machine. I really worked for it. And you just bought it. But it's not like the money fell from the sky. Maybe right, you yeah. really worked for the money and then turned it into a machine. Like, who? the work just came at a different point. And I think that's really kind of gets down to the heart of a lot of this is, is – when we attack people or, or treat people like that, it's because we make assumptions about their experiences and where they're coming from without bothering to investigate, to find out, to talk to these people and, and see where, where our common ground is rather than 
areas of contention where I can immediately begin picking on you because it's just, <laughs> this is crap. It is. So there, take that. Yeah. So anyway, we got a lot of email about it. I think it's a good conversation to have anyway. So I'm, I'm actually glad we had that whole discussion about it. And I've been, I've been enjoying the feedback we've been getting so far. About it. <laughs> Me, not quite. So maybe much, less but... so for you, but maybe it'll be nicer now. But I've been enjoying it. We even got an email from Chris himself. Wait, Chris wait, Kalaris. before you do that, I need, to, I need to adjust my golden crown. One second, please. <laughs> All right, proceed. You make me laugh. Chris uh, Kalaris, the guy from the, the the article we talked about, he actually wrote in and sort of thanked us. And, um, you. For sort of, well, no, but just thanked us for, for bringing it up and for, you know, take, taking, a, in a sense, take, taking a stand like it really was hard for us or, or we really accomplished anything. But I do think it's important when you, when you encounter stuff like this, when you encounter people being mean, when you encounter racism, when you encounter sexism, whatever, it does actually help to kind of just speak up and say, that's not okay. Even if that's all you do, like enough voices saying that's not okay, you resonate and that's how things get changed slowly. So, um, But looking at other email we got, uh, Jessica wrote it. <clears throat> this is a good balanced one. She said, I wanted to cheer when Carrington took his very agitated, oh so agitated stand against what he called the douche royale blowhards who love to gang up on newbies to this hobby. It's not, oh, just, ar- it's not just arcade collectors, but pretty much every so-called nerd hobby that seems to yep. be flooded nowadays with these low <laughs> yep. self-esteem bullies. <laughs> I've often experienced the exact same kind of put-downs and shaming when it comes to comics, cosplay, cons, cades, and even some things that don't start with C. You bought your cabinet on eBay? Well, then you're a bad person. You like superheroes that other people might have heard of? You're not a real comic book fan. You've got one more X chromosome than me? Then you're a fake geek girl, and you can't really like what you say you like, even if it's the same thing I say I like. It's all just bullying. Anyway, thanks for saying what needs to be said. Put it on a t-shirt. You got yourself a sale. Keep on podcasting. Jessica, I thought that was very nicely put. So Because it was her email that came in that first made me think it kind of is all the same thing. Like this and the fake geek girl thing and all of that. Um, what some other emails later called geek gatekeeping is all of a, of a sort. And I hadn't even realized at the time that it really is. That's why I think it upsets me because all those topics sort of upset me. So there. We had a much... Uh, I think an even-handed take on the subject, though, uh, from Tommy. Tommy wrote in to say, Your recent boot camp episode was timely, particularly the discussion about collecting arcade games and many collectors' holier-than-thou attitude. I recently asked online for some help with converting my one and only coin-op, a Galaga, to a multi-game board machine. Needless to say, the response from the arcade populace was disheartening. (laughs) Stop reading right now. (laughs) <laughs> well, we see this, I think, also touches on a yeah. good topic. Mm-hmm. So it says, um, anyway, Tommy says, I explained to them that the the enormous respect I have for the people who restored my machine and for the machine itself. I made it clear that I was simply disconnecting a few wires and popping on a new control panel. So the whole process was entirely reversible in about 10 minutes. That's right. 10 minutes to return it to its original restored condition. I was doing nothing permanent to my arcade game, yet someone felt the need to chastise me for, quote, hacking up a perfectly good Galaga. That was never Tommy. (laughs) Never mind that I was someone new to the hobby who needed guidance connecting a couple of wires. Never mind that this was my first foray into working on an arcade machine. And by doing so, I learned a lot about what's inside and felt more confident to work on another machine should I ever have the chance. And never mind the notion that this was their opportunity to welcome someone new to the hobby of arcade collecting. Apparently, it was more important to admonish me for my transgression. As somebody trained in archaeology, I understand the desire to preserve the artifacts of history. I get that they are 
protective of their hobby and these wonderful machines. But it seems to me that the hardcore collector mentality could use a bit of a reset, have some perspective, embrace the new guy, help people enter what could be a wonderful community of like-minded individuals free from the fear of retaliation for doing something as simple and as reversible as what I did. I'm convinced more people would become interested in arcade game collecting, and the result, at the very least, would be more games preserved and fewer neglected or destroyed. P.S. To be fair, I did get the help I needed from some of them and got my conversion working. I also got a small personal email from one of the members telling me that it's not as bad as it seems, and some collectors do actually install multi-game boards in their machines, (laughs) so that was nice, and I guess they're not all that bad. So I liked his email a lot because... It, it it's another thing that it reminded me that I also sometimes can wear this crown because I know I have offhandedly commented many times. And I bet you if we look back on our catalog of episodes, you could pull out a bunch of times that I have said things like, oh, well, you shouldn't take a machine and you shouldn't change it. You like it's, Note to self, check Carrington's quotes on well, but But you know what I mean? Like, I think we all do this and it's important to make a stand when, you know, somebody else is being douchey. But it's also important to recognize when you are doing it yourself. And I know, I just, I can feel it in my gut that, well, I've <laughs> never, I've never gone online and actually typed out something mean to somebody saying, oh, you shouldn't do that. I know I've commented and I bet you some things I've said in this show in the past have made feel people feel crappy because they were just working on a main cabinet and getting into it. And then here I go all holier than thou, hmm. you know, saying, oh, you shouldn't do that when, you know what? it's it's a it's a gray topic and i do think preserving some of these is good at the same time i'm big on the idea that you own what you own you should do what you want especially if you're doing it in a reversible way i think i have previously taken the wrong stand in this and so i should be apologizing to people so this is my official apology mike is not the only douche on this show stop defending me don't (laughs) apologize for me um i know i said you're not the only one i'm not saying you're not one (laughs) i i think that i think it's important to have opinions i think it's great to have you know your methods for doing things and you know we all have habits and and we processes that we like and processes that we don't it's it's when we begin to use those to judge the way other people do things and, and to push them, push that into their face and tell them that mm-hmm. you're wrong because of that, then that's when, that's when you're, that's when you're out of line. That's, you know, and, and that's, that's where it's got to stop because, you know, I, you don't see this very much on television. The, the one example that comes to my head is where they, you know, the, the episode of, of um, Seinfeld where, where George is playing Frogger and that the cabinet gets run over by the truck and just smashed to bits. Yes. You know, if they, go, cra- across the road. If they go crazy about uh, uh, Tommy's, uh, Tommy's couple of wire <laughs> snips, I wonder what they were thinking about that. Where you do see it a lot more is, is with the, the vintage cars, you know, they, you'll see like the gone in 60 seconds where they have all these really beautiful oh, muscle cars, them. American muscle cars, and they just trash them left and right. Now, and, I'm I'm not attached to the muscle cars like that, but a part of me and my you know back of my head just kind of hopes I really hope those are replicas and not the real thing. But again, it's their cars, you know, and if they want to smash those cars up, do it. It just makes the rest of ours more collectible. I guess. <laughs> exactly. Like if everyone else destroys their their um like gravitar machines and I've got the only <laughs> one left. Oh baby. Step three profit. That's what I'm saying. Um, so I won't read the email because it was a bit long, but we got an email from friend of the show, Roberta, who's written in a couple times. She of the wonderful email address. It was so funny. Um, and so most I just want to bring up, say this so I can put it in the show notes. She gave us some great links. She was the first person to write in about how 
a lot of what we were saying is totally in line with the whole fake geek girl thing. And it's something that comes up a lot in, in geek culture right now. Give us a great couple of links over to this uh, geek feminism site over at wikia.com about fake geek girls and also sort of a definition and examples of this idea of geek gatekeeping. So I'm going to have both of those links in the show notes because both of those were great starting points where I went down a real, like a good rabbit hole that made me also look at things that I've said and stuff. And I thought it was really good and interesting. So I want to link to those. And then she also gave us a link to a video of of the song by the Double Clicks, a band I actually really like. And I should have thought of this when we were talking about it, but they've got this amazing song called Nothing to Prove, which is just about sort of being a nerd and trying to enter some sort of nerd, nerd community and this whole geek gatekeepers come down and say, no, you're doing it wrong or you're not good at what you like isn't really what you like or what have you. And it's a great song, a real anthem to pick people up. And I think people like Chris and people like me and everybody who's encountered this, just it's a great song to listen to. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes and everybody should go off and listen because the song is awesome. So that's what I got to say about that. Read books, we played games, we made art, we watched Lost, we said things like D20, shipping, and mana cost. It felt good to be myself, not being mocked, still self-conscious, though we whispered things about jocks. But one day you grow up, come into your own. Now geek's not rejection, it's a label I own. Then ignorant haters... Come to prove me wrong Tell me I'm not nerdy enough to belong I've got nothing to prove I've got nothing to prove So we got also email um, from Ron Fireisen, name I like to say, who sent us a screenshot from the Namco Museum vol- Volume 1 disc for PlayStation because I had mentioned, like two episodes ago, we talked about in Bosconi and how it was shipped, the cabinets came with some sort of instruction booklet or something, or instruction flyers, and we were thinking, but how are they attached? And so I spent a week looking, couldn't find anything, and last week I was like, I don't think these things really exist. Well, now we're back to maybe they did because Ron found this thing in the Namco Museum, and it's a card that supposedly was attached to the arcade game. So it came with Bosconian. And so rather than being a sticker or something, it's like a card that comes with it, and it's basically instructions. So I guess that kind of solves the problem. Like, how would you distribute a card? Like, how many would you have? Well, in this case, you would just have the one. It would be laminated or whatever, and it would be mounted on the machine, and it gives you instructions. So this is probably the thing that those other sites a couple of weeks ago were talking about as the instruction booklets or whatever, or cheat things or whatever the heck they were, that came with Bosconian. So it looks like I was wrong last week. They, it probably did exist just in a different format that I was anticipating and well done, Ron, to track it down. Indeed. So there you go. <laughs> I just <laughs> want to call it out because that was really cool that he found that. Uh, yeah, I couldn't. I, I was, well, I was wondering if, if maybe the card thing was just something that happened in Japan because I, I don't know how the culture was back then in Japanese arcades, but I imagine over here in the States, those things would be stolen as soon as possible and, and defaced and all sorts of things. Maybe it was defaced. Maybe it came in English and somebody defaced it with a whole <laughs> Some, bunch of Japanese. Somebody erased it and re- rewrote it in kanji. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all just fake stuff. It's sort of like the same writing that was on the bottom of bottom right corner of the, the Sorry Charlie poster, <laughs> where that sort of is Japanese, but just says, I'm in prison, help me. <laughs> so maybe that's what this says. We don't know. <laughs> So that's it. That's what I got for feedback. That's what I got for news. That's what I got. <laughs> Let's move on to the game, because this week's game is a weird one. Yeah, well, I'm not sure this is really a game. 
<laughs> Are you dubious? I am. Yeah. Well, the game, supposedly, the supposed <laughs> game is called Dark Planet by Stern. And as far as I know, nobody guessed it from the uh, from the sample. And I'm not surprised. <laughs> it was a game that is copyright 82, but I think it was actually released in January 1983. But it was displayed and sold at the AMOA show in 1982. So it's technically an 82 thing. But they got very few sale orders, so they only basically handmade a handful of these things, and it never went into full production. So it's a remarkably rare game. It's also a remarkably weird game, because <laughs> it's, I think, the first game, in fact, I know, the first game that we've talked about that is in 3D. So this is a game with an actual, you know, two-color 3D effect when you play the game. So that's kind of neat. I still don't think this is a game. Well, I'm going to keep telling you points about it, and you tell me when it starts to sound real. <laughs> the thing is that that when I when I started playing, when I loaded up the ROM in, in Mame, I thought it was broken. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't sure what to think really because in I fact, you emailed me saying I think this ROM might be corrupt or something. Well, yeah, I didn't. But normally, when there's a problem with the ROM, it'll crash back to whatever interface you're using with usually with a message, you know, ROM's missing or emulation isn't working or something like that. This thing actually loaded through, and then. I don't know what I was looking at because in MAME, you start out and, and for me, it was in the kind of the lower left quadrant of the screen at first, these shapes appear and they start drawing lines and you have a little blue ship that kind of sort of, I got ghost images of the ship. It would kind of jump around and appear in other places here and there. And, um, I, you, I, I don't, I, I had, I still, I played this, game a lot and I still I watch videos and, and usually when I get stuck at a point in in in, in Mamer, a game I will go on you know go to YouTube and see what I'm doing wrong mm-hmm. watch a playthrough video I couldn't figure out watching the playthrough videos and <laughs> apparently neither could anyone else Well that's it cuz once I I tracked in cuz I was I was thinking like what is this game is my rom not working like I don't understand this at all and it wasn't like bad the way a shovelware game is bad where you can look at it and go oh i get it but there's bad implementation it was more that i didn't get it it was almost like is this just being made up like is there a point to this game things seem to be shooting there's the two different colors i don't understand so i also was ready to basically just give up on this thing but i tracked on a copy of the manual and i tracked on a copy of the flyer and i read those and then i tracked down a copy of the, the like screenshots from the actual cabinet because the way this cabinet works is there's an actual physical model inside in 3D of essentially um, uh, imagine like a, a quarry, like a, a square shaped quarry where the, you've got these high walls and you've dug down to the middle. So this is big pit and the game kind of takes place both in the pit and above the pit. And there's one of those like an actual model being reflected by a mirror. And it's a curved mirror, so it may, or I think it's convex those or concave because it makes the it makes the the quarry appear like it's on a on a ball, like it's a planet you're looking at with a big chunk of it dug out, even though it's really just this flat model that's a little sculpted thing and made out of urethane. And then there's the actual video part happening, and then 
using a mirror as well, these are reflected together. So you're seeing the computer images floating on top of this urethane model. And the computer is keeping track of two different levels, which is why everything appears in two colors. You've got the red stuff. Everything red is taking place on the floor of the quarry, way down there. And everything blue is taking a place in the sky above the quarry. So at any given time, your ship is on one of those two levels. That's why a lot of times you'll fly around and shoot and you don't interact with half the things you see because you have to know that it's on a lower level. Now, this is easier when you play it on a real cabinet because it has these this lens you're looking through and the two mirror parts, I guess, are going through colored filters. So you get that 3D effect, like the old fashioned glasses you'd wear of the red and blue glasses, um, 1950s 3D effect is using that. And I know that this is already starting to sound like a sorry Charlie machine because it's like, sure, there's a 3D model and weird glasses mounted to the front. And there but aren't really cabinets you can actually see this on. <laughs> but trust me, just, this is not, listener, this is not another April Fool's joke. I promise you this time, this is a real cabinet. June Fools. <laughs> All the time fools. It's actually real. And the point is if you play this in MAME, at least in my MAME setup and everything I could see online, although there's not a lot of videos showing the MAME thing, you don't get to see that 3D model image. Like nobody's taken sort of a picture of that because it's not like games where it's a graphical overlay. And a lot of times those get scanned and included as backgrounds or foregrounds in MAME. Since this is a, an actual physical 3D model you're supposed to see, it's not included in the MAME um, distribution, which means you don't see that canyon. Normally, that wouldn't be a big deal. It's just, you know, background dressing, who cares? But the neat thing about this game is there's physical things in this model that you have to interact with in the video game. In the top right corner, there is a vacuum tube sort of mounted there. That acts as a tube that your ship can fly into and out of, and that's how you go between the two levels. So if you don't have that model, you don't know where to steer your ship to go to the bottom level, which you have to do. Also, in the bottom right corner in the model, there's a volcano, like a sculpted little volcano. Every once in a while, the volcano will erupt and it spits out like blue smoke kind of that fills the screen. And if you don't have the model or the instructions, it's just like suddenly the screen starts to fill with blue and you have no idea why. And the reality is it's the volcano erupting and you have to shoot it with your missiles to stop the eruption. And if you don't, the eruption will fill the screen and you'll die because if you touch the erupting part, then your ship gets destroyed. But without seeing the model and without reading the instructions, it makes the game quite hard to play in main. Okay. Now I read the instructions and they still didn't make any sense to me. I think, Carrington, do you remember stereograms? I do remember stereograms. Very, They're very, phony. Very popular in the, in the nineties. It's a um, schooner. Yes. It's a sailboat and it's a lie. There's nothing actually there and no one can see it, but everybody wants to be cool. Nobody wants to be the one to admit that they can't actually see it. So they sort of, a, there's this like sort of a, unspoken agreement within the group that everybody's going to lie and say that this is what it is. And we all saw it. And if you didn't, you should feel bad. That's what this game is. There's no game here. There's no rules. Nothing makes any sense, but we're just going to pretend that it, that it's real. <laughs> it is real because, okay, here's the concept of the game and you wouldn't necessarily get it from the graphics you see on screen. Cause it's How kind of joysticks? blobs and lines. No joysticks. <laughs> Again, it's not so It's real. Ten. No, there's three buttons on each side, but three buttons and a spinner. So the, this is a spinner control game. It kind of controls like asteroids. We have a, a spinner that controls your, in the back. No. That... <laughs> a spinner that controls your ship. You have a thrust button and you, you have both a fire 
and a laser button, and they do two different things. So the fire button shoots missiles out of the front of your ship, and they stay on the same level you're on. So if you're in the sky, you can shoot fighters that fly around in the sky. On the side of the canyon walls, there are also high-mounted guns that if you spend too much time in the sky, they will start shooting at you. They'll be these blue gun things. You need to shoot those with your missiles as well. The reason you might spend too much time in the sky is because up in the sky, there's a lot less stuff and you have a laser button. The laser simply shoots down and destroys anything below you. And the things down on the ground, with one exception, can't shoot up. So as long as you're flying on the top level, you can just use your laser and devastate everything on the lower level, which is why you get tempted to stay up with it all the time. But if you do, then the side guns start shooting at you and more fighters come and it sort of forces you to you know, take the fight to the ground and go down there. But if you're on the ground too long, then the volcano can erupt and you have to go back up to the upper level. So the game is all about trying to keep your eyes on both levels, but mostly interact with the level that you're on at the time. Now, the again, not sorry, Charlie, this is real. So the, cons- <laughs> the concept of the game is you're on this planet as a solo fighter and you're trying to destroy everything. So basically everything that's not you, you're supposed to shoot. Most of it takes place on the ground and there are three bunkers they're kind of like a big oval shape it starts off with one bunker in the bottom of the screen the second bunker will be in the top right and the third bunker will be in the top left so eventually there'll be three bunkers out of the bunkers come what the manual calls jeeps but what i guess they didn't get the trademark for jeep so what everything else calls rail rovers (laughs) so on the monitor it says they're rail rovers rail rovers are essentially these little cars that will drive around and they lay down tracks attempting to make a big loop from the bunker so it goes out from the bunker we'll scroll around and eventually go back to the bunker the reason they're doing that is there's a a train that they call a laser train on the, the each track The laser train is the only thing down there that can shoot up. So it's the big thing moving around the track. And if you fly over top of it, it's going to shoot you and destroy you when you're on the top level. So the goal is to shoot everything on the bottom, destroy the track, destroy those little rail rovers, and also get rid of that train when it comes out, which will require flying down to the bottom and shooting the train with your, your missiles rather than using your laser. So what they're trying to do on the bottom is build these three tracks you're just trying to destroy them all. And if you destroy all the, if you destroy the laser train and all the rail rovers on a given track, you can then destroy the bunker by shooting it and you set it on fire. So it changes the, the look of it and it's now burning and you get a big bonus for that. If you can get all three bunkers burning at the same time, you get a 50,000 point bonus, which is huge. I never got that. <laughs> you tell from my score, I never got that one. But that, So that's basically the concept. They're building trains on the bottom. You're a flyer. You can be go between the different levels. Sometimes on the top, you have to shoot guns on the cliffside. Sometimes you have to use your missiles to quiet down a volcano. Sometimes you have to fly down a tube to go to the bottom and shoot laser trains and blow up bunkers and that's the game like it's it's not actually that complicated but if you don't see that 3d model and you can't see the cliffs and you can't see the tube and you can't see the volcano it's a very difficult game to play how this didn't become a top 10 game immediately (laughs) is beyond me once you get the concept, though, I'm telling you, if you go back and play it now, it's actually really fun. I actually really, I really enjoyed playing this game. But for the first few days, I was like, what the heck is going on? Once you get it, it becomes really fun to play. play. It's a sailboat. It's a sailboat. <laughs> so there. So you didn't dig this game is what you're saying? It wasn't that I didn't dig it. I just couldn't figure it out. I, I, it looked sort of neat. Um, but 
you know, like you said, because there are the layers there. And so you're not always interacting with the level that you think you are. And so, so you would hit some things and they would explode and some things you would just sort of fly through because you were actually flying over or under them. And then every now and then the screen would just sort of bloom in this blue and <laughs> be like, what the heck is going yeah. on? Um, so Stern obviously is mainly, a well, now they're exclusively a pinball company. And I, I think even going back, they, I mean, they had, um, they actually did have one or two popular games that I'm not, I don't have in front of me. And I think they did Berserk. That's yeah, what I think it was—the yeah. iconic Stern game, and they, and I think Scramble might have been there too. They did Berserk, and and they partnered with uh, a couple of companies that that were better at making arcade games, and those games did pretty well. Uh-huh. Um, I think this was one of the only ones that Stern did by themselves, and you can see the why they're why they're pinball makers. Mm. The design there was two designers behind this. Is pair of friends. Um, and former toy makers. They worked for some company that made like board games and toys. It's a guy named Eric Erickson and Dan Langloy, I guess is how it'd be pronounced. And they made this uh, slime monster board game. Remember slime back in the, the <laughs> 70s? Slime, yeah. It was that green stuff. Yeah, and so that came out. And then they were tasked by the toy manufacturers to say, they implemented in something. And they implemented the, the slime monster board game. So the guys behind that are who made this thing. <laughs> and so, but the fun thing is, and this is going to honestly, we're, we're entering, sorry, Charlie, <laughs> territory here. <laughs> but how, and, and I swear, I've got it from multiple sources that this is true, but just brace yourself for something that's going to sound phony as heck. So Eric and Dan pitch this this concept of this game. All the stuff I just told you about, the multiple layers, the the volcano, the rail rover things, the, the cliffs, like all this weird stuff going on. Neither of them have ever made a video game before. So they don't really know how, neither of them are programmers at this point. Like they don't have to, they have no programming skills, they don't know what they're going to do. They're toy makers. So they're like, how do we pitch a game? How do we sell a game? So what they do is they make the cabinet so they actually build a full-size, full, ready-to-go arcade cabinet with the controls and everything. They then use cutouts. They, like, draw the art of what the graphics will be. They cut it all out, and they make a stop-motion video game, or stop-motion movie, rather, of the video game. Like, they move everything by hand, and they take a picture. So they make this film loop that looks like a playing video game. They install that in the cabinet. So it's basically, it just starts playing a film loop as if you're playing. Like like little kids when you hold the controller and they're not doing anything, but they think they are. That's what they made. And so they would like, that's how they sold this game. Like the game was actually just a film of the game. And then once they sold a bunch, they hired these two programmers, Dale Jurek and Bill uh, Yankee, to actually make the game based on the film they had made. So they gave the film and said, make a game that plays like this film looks like it plays. Wow. <laughs> totally out of story. <laughs> Isn't that the weirdest thing ever? Everything about this game is just strange. Well, the, it gets stranger. So this was like the first game they did. They went on to pitch other games, none of which sold. But for future ones, rather than going to the trouble of making a film, they would make like a puppet show. And Dan Langloy, the, one of the, not Eric, Eric would be in front of the game and he'd pitch it. Dan would crouch behind the prototype and move stuff and play the sounds on audio cassettes. So he would like do kind of a video game puppet show from being like, I swear it sounds so phony. But that's what they did to sell their game. I love these guys. <laughs> uh, well, I because I, I was not able to figure the game out, I, I really don't have a whole lot to add. Um, <laughs> tell us about the cabinet, Carrington. 
The cabinet is awesome. Now, it unfortunately doesn't come with a fellow who crouches behind it and operates <laughs> it like a puppet, which would make it the best game ever. <laughs> but if I had one, that's what I would do. I would story Charlie the heck out of this thing. But so the cabinet is is big. The thing that jumps out right away is it's got this glass you look through that is color-coded, and it gives you that 3D effect in this big vertical glass. It's got these two color lenses in it, which is cool, other than it means you have to be within like an eight-inch range of height to actually play this game. Because <laughs> if you're too tall or too short, you can't see the 3D effect in it, and everything gets misaligned, and it doesn't work at all. So later, they made a few games like this. They realized no kids can play this game, so then the later half of the models they shipped came with a stool inside the cabinet that you could then take out. I know it sounds like a stool. It sounds, sorry, Charlie. I swear it's not fake. So they shipped with an integrated stool inside the cabinet. You could open up and take the stool out and put it in front of the cabinet to stand on it and raise short people up. But if you were taller, if you're over six feet, you have to play the whole game like crouched over to be able to see it right. So again, there's there's a lot of reasons this game wasn't going to be successful. But the cabinet is super colorful. It's got this great... 1950s sci-fi style art. I love it. It's got a nice colorful control panel. There's the spinner in the center, and then there's three buttons to either side. So it's ambidextrous cabinet. The three buttons are fire, thrust, and laser, like we talked about. Um, and we also talked about how the cab never went into full production. I have no idea what it costs to get one of these. I couldn't find anybody who sold one. I would presume quite a bit, because it's a particularly rare cabinet. I don't know if it's particularly desired, though. Um, but it's cool looking, and it's a cabinet just on cabinet shape that I would love to have in a collection, because I think it's really beautiful. Are you waiting for an opinion from me? <laughs> and what would what what do you think about the cabinet? It looks pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> you got to admit though, this is one of the more different games we've talked about. Yeah, I, no, no, uh, no argument for me there. <laughs> I don't even know how I got the score that I got. And the thing is, um, I think this game. Did you pick this game? Like, how did we even come across this game? Uh, somebody mentioned it. Uh, well, I mean, that's how, how we pick all our games. Uh, listeners write in and say, you should talk about this. And then I <clears throat> I either throw a couple at you and you pick, or I pick a randomly pick one off the list that looks interesting, and that's how we got to this. I think that's how we got this one. So I think it was a great choice. Um, let's talk scores. I think mine's better <laughs> than yours because I don't think you ever got a score going. So I'm going to win this week, baby. I'm going to win. <laughs> so what did you do? What was your score? I, uh, somehow it was 4,400 points. I couldn't tell you how I got there or, or why. I think it may have dipped down a couple of times. I don't know. <laughs> Very low score. So uh, my best score, best I did for the week was 88,400. So we both ended in 400. All the scores <laughs> I got always ended in even hundreds because I don't think it's possible to get anything smaller. You get like um, 100 points for killing one of those Jeeps. Most things are either 1,000 or 10,000 points. Um, like the cliff guns are 1,000. I think the fighters are 1,000. The big money comes for the laser trains, 10,000 and the bunkers are, are 10,000, and that big bonus if you get all three bunkers at once, which I could never get. Um, interestingly, the dip switch settings for this by default give you an extra life at 100,000 points, and that's it. You get one extra life ever, and you never get another extra life. You can set a dip switch setting that will let you get an extra life either every 100 or every 200,000 points. But I found it interesting that this is a game that says, you know what, no one's ever going to do that well. One extra life is all you'll ever need. <laughs> I never got my extra life. You got enough to beat me pretty soundly, though. Well, the world record for this game, uh, I think I have that written down somewhere. Yeah, so a fellow named Scott Young 
Uh, he holds the official world record for this game with 9,954,900 points. And he got it in 1983, March 1st, 1983. So it's a, it's a score that has stood the test of time, I think mostly because no one could find this game. <laughs> I think he just made it up and nobody knew how to verify that it could very well be. Four, so. so I have no idea if this rolls over. I have no idea if it eventually has a kill screen. Like what? He got almost 10 million points. I don't know if there's another digit you could get. Um, there's not. It's hard to find info about this game. It's hard to find info about the people who made the game other than they seem to be kind of weird <laughs> making their puppet shows <laughs> and stuff. I love that. The guy, Eric, uh, Eric Arison, the guy who, who designed this game, he now makes and sells life masks and he also sells busts he makes custom busts of famous people um it's some company called house of masks so he's gone out of computing and into head making (laughs) again i'm not making any of this stuff up it's awesome somebody needs to make a documentary about this i think you need to make that documentary oh not me no i'm not good with a camera oh well um what game will be talked about next week on no quarter Carrington. Actually, next week is going to be a very special episode. Something different. What do you think that'll sound like? Perhaps it sounds like this. Now, I'm going to go home and, and uh, adjust my, my crown in the front of the mirror for a while. I'm going to send you a nasty email about it. <laughs> oh, get in line, pal. <laughs> I got a bunch of them. <laughs> well, thank you for podcasting with me this, Mike. I really enjoyed this week's game. I may be the only person who ever will, but I really <laughs> dug it. All right. You've been listening to No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Feedback can be sent by email to noquarter at monsterfeet.com, or you can find us on Facebook as No Quarter Podcast, and on Twitter, we are at No Quarter Show. You can also find us on both the Throwback Network and the Real Retro Junkies Network. All of these links, plus the show notes, are available at monsterfeet.com, and like all Monster Feet podcasts, the original material in this episode has been released to the public domain. <laughs>